Soviet forces invaded Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Are you from Afghanistan? We're not going to repeat that. Mistake. America's longest war. I could win that war in a week. That hospital bombing was devastating. A lot of innocent civilians were killed. Every year there was this sense that if we did X, Y, and Z, we could finish the war. You can see in their eyes the weariness and frustration because it's their country. Seven American presidents, from Jimmy Carter to Donald Trump, all talking about a conflict seemingly with no end. It's the subject of The Longest War, a new film about Afghanistan that will premiere on Showtime Sunday night, April 19th. The film is a penetrating look at decades of death, destruction, crushed dreams, and self-deception that mark the American military presence in that country. But with an uneasy peace deal now on the table, will anything change? We'll discuss with Greg Barker, the director of The Longest War, on this episode of Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. I have to say, the uh, watching this film, which is really quite gripping, what really struck me is the historical dimension that we so often forget. We think of Afghanistan as something that's in the back pages of the foreign news section, occasionally getting uh, some headlines. But going back to the Soviet invasion in 1979, right through to the CIA's secret war against the Soviets, to the rise of the Taliban, to the... Uh, U.S. invasion to us looking the other way and shifting resources to Iraq. On and on it goes. And here we are decades later, still enmeshed in that country, still with troops on the ground, taking casualties. And the question arises, will it ever end? Yeah, you know, well, they call it the graveyard of empires, uh, the Brits, the Russians, uh, and and now the Americans. And, you know, the irony is, the longer we're there, the more history we have that with that place, the less we seem to understand it, and, and the more mistakes we seem to make. And uh, 20 years later, since the invasion after 9-11, 2,500 people dead, 20,000 wounded, a trillion dollars spent, and, you know, some people would say lost. And here we are. The hope is that uh, at some point uh, we'll, we will learn from those mistakes and resist uh, these kinds of adventures in the future. But I don't know. If you look at each of the, the, the triggering events for American 
involvement. You know, the Soviets invade. The CIA, you know, launches the covert war to expel them from the country. The rise of the Taliban. All of those were, uh, and, and the harboring of Osama bin Laden. That's why we invaded in 2001. All those were real events that arguably had a direct impact on American national security. But everybody is very good. Every president is very good at responding to the crisis of the moment. But when you look for a long-term strategy, uh, an exit strategy, as it were, it just never seemed to be on the horizon. And I got to say, you know, this peace deal that Trump is touting and has signed, uh, there's a lot of skepticism that it's going to lead us into any better place, that the Taliban is really going to lay down their arms and allow for a um, anything resembling a uh, free and democratic government in that country. Well, of course, that wasn't the original objective to turn Afghanistan in a free and, and democratic uh, government. The objective of our invasion of Afghanistan was to expel al-Qaeda uh, from, from there and to kill Osama bin Laden. And that has happened. And you could argue that was the moment, maybe. That was the moment, maybe, back in 2011 when Obama should have said, okay, we got our guy, bin Laden's dead, al-Qaeda's on the run, now's the time we can start uh, drawing down. But look, all these are questions we can um, debate endlessly, will be debated endlessly, but uh, let's get the perspective of the guy who made this movie, veteran filmmaker Greg Barker, and he's with us. Let's hear what he has to say. We now have with us Greg Barker, the director of The Longest War, which will be premiering on Showtime April 19th. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Really powerful movie uh, and uh, goes into a historical sweep that I don't think most people understand when they think about uh, the war in Afghanistan. But tell us what prompted you to want to make this movie now? Well, partly because it's just been so long and, and we hear stories of peace deals and yeah, it started, it started me think, getting me thinking about how ever my entire adult life I've been hearing about Afghanistan. And um, in fact, in the film, we sort of trace back every president since Jimmy Carter talking about uh, our objectives in Afghanistan and telling us things that would be okay when in fact, as we all know, it's, it's just continued on and on. There was an amazing opportunity that came up in partnership with the exec producers of, uh, of Homeland, which the last season, which is running right now, is all set in Afghanistan. In the course of doing those, their, their research, they, do a deep, they did a deep dive into U.S. policy in Afghanistan and to supplement the film. And they had this idea, like, what if we did a documentary around that? And... Um, and took it to Showtime, and uh, and they came to me, and, and it was just the perfect combination. And then I, I collaborated with my longtime friends, uh, Peter Bergen and his his wife, Tresha Mabel, who have a lot of experience in Afghanistan, and we've done a lot of films together. So it just kind of it just kind of came together, and it felt like the right time to step back and uh, and tell this story. 
Greg, you know, you mentioned that this has been going on for what feels like all of our lives. I remember in October of 2001, getting a phone call, stepping out of a Chinese restaurant. Mike and I were both working at Newsweek at the time because the bombing had begun. And at the time, man, you know, we thought it was going to be a fast war. And, you know, I didn't have children then. I now have a daughter who's like getting ready to go to college. And, you know, one of the things that is striking about the movie is that there seem to have been seem to have been all these different points over the last, you know, two decades, you know, kind of points where we made mistakes that we could have avoided, we could have ended the war, it could have taken a different trajectory. Think about a possible peace deal early on with the Taliban. Obviously, the decision to go into Iraq. Talk a little bit about um, those kinds of inflection points over the course of this entire war. It was striking looking at it. You know, I, I, yeah, I was in, in, in Kabul uh, and traveled quite a, around the country quite a bit in early 2002 for Frontline PBS. And um, you know, who would have imagined we'd still be talking about it and still there now? And, um, but it seemed like looking at the whole history there were really only a couple of moments of, of real clarity of purpose during the, the 80s, the CIA's campaign against the, the Soviets in support of the Mujahideen. And you can argue about whether that was effective or not, but they sort of knew what they were doing. And in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, where the purpose was, the objective was to overthrow the Taliban and, and disrupt al-Qaeda, and then install a new government, and then help recreate Afghan society, Things got a bit muddied then, and, with, and I think it, from here it sort of shows. Look, we're living in a complex global problem right now. These things are when you take your eye off the ball, things tend to go wrong, and which happened consistently in Afghanistan. You know, most notably with Iraq. You know, I mean, I think that's the, the at, at the exact moment when Afghanistan needed attention. You know, we were invading another country. And um, and all of the, it wasn't just, it was the national policy, as you guys know, it works. Like some people just have so much capacity to deal with. So it wasn't just, it was the policymaker attention shifts, you know, SEAL teams moved from Afghanistan, suddenly on Iraq, satellite time. You know, I remember talking to some uh, an agency guys, like we couldn't even get the satellite imagery because it was, everything was just shifted over to Iraq. And people just assumed it was okay. And then, of course, the Taliban, which had been offered a sort of peace deal, after refusing to give up bin Laden after, and after harboring him, but they, they did, some elements apparently did want to make some kind of accommodation right after 9-11 or after the war and were, were, were rejected. They saw an opportunity to regroup and then we had our eye off the ball and then, you know, kept being told for years and years that success was just around the corner. You know, the tragedy here is the, uh, the lies have been told to the American people, I think. And also just, you know, for more importantly, for the ordinary Afghans who've lived 40 years under a continual state of, of chaos and warfare. I can't imagine what it must must be like to have grown up under that. I just want to follow up on that a little bit, because unquestionably, the um, invasion of Iraq and the uh, transfer of resources from Afghanistan to Iraq was one of those inflection points that Danny was referring to. But when one looks at it after watching the movie and trying to sort of pinpoint a moment when we could have done something different that might have made a difference, it seems to me that the Obama first year was that moment. He comes in and there's an intensive debate 
within the new administration and National Security Council? Do we double down or do we begin to pull out? Clearly, Obama's instinct was to want to pull out, but he doesn't. He does double down. He follows the generals. And it seems to me that's the one moment that one could sort of point to and say, but for that, things could have been different. Do you agree? Yeah, I think that's right. Michael. I think that's right. I think um, I think there were a lot of factors. If you were sitting in the White House at that time, you know, concern about, I mean, the threat of international terrorism now seems, I think, a bit distant. Um, at the time, it was pretty visceral. And, and, and I think the last thing somebody in the White House would have wanted was um, another terrorist attack or that could be traced back to Afghanistan right after we pulled out. So I think there were a lot of factors there. But yeah, I think you're right. I think it's like they, you know, they had the conversations, they had those internal deliberations, which I remember cover, I remember it being covered at the time, got a lot of attention and went on for a long time. And there was sort of the expectations that the result would be something kind of, kind of transformative, when in fact, it was sort of more of the same, um, more troops for a while. What we know also is that there was a massive sort of uptick of uh, drone, uh, the drone use. And uh, I think, you know, I, it's the numbers speak for themselves. And we outline in the film through Peter Bergen's research is that, you know, Obama kind of turned to the drone program based out of Afghanistan much more heavily than, than even the last years of the Bush administration. Well, well Greg, I actually want to pick up on that because I think one of the things that your movie does is it hammers home this point that the Afghan war was a CIA war. And beginning with, uh, yeah, and I'm talking about the, you know, the post 9-11 period, but beginning with the CIA being the first boots on the ground uh, for the Americans, the secret detention and torture program, and the drone program, which of course alienated so many of our Afghan allies, that the CIA was this kind of unaccountable paramilitary force at the disposal of American presidents. And I wonder the extent to which that fact that the CIA was driving this in so many ways, and that presidents had the ability to run the kind of, you know, their own wars with this tool that they had at their disposal, what played into all of this and, and the fact that it went on as long as it has gone on. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely. I mean, it's the, in fact, the, you know, the focus of the film is really the, the agency's activities there going back to the, to the 80s. And uh, in fact, you know, we, I mean, they led the operations against uh, the Soviet occupation and clearly were trying to do more under the, uh, the Clinton administration against the bin Laden presence there and then led the war after 9-11. I mean, there were a handful of special operations troops on, on the ground with some, a couple dozen agency officers who, you know, combined with U.S. air power, led that war. And then and the, the objectives were, I think, always a kind of counterterrorism. And then, of course, we we sort of started rebuilding the country, which was all sort of worthy. And it got mixed in terms of the messaging. But I think at its core, it's always been a war driven by the uh, the key objectives. The key underlying objectives have been driven by the agency, with the larger military dealing with the situation on the ground, which is, you know, became a war against the Taliban over time. You know, the conundrum here is you mentioned that part of the mission in the early days was nation building. And a lot of people frown on that. Uh, it, it doesn't sound good in the current context of uh, limited resources. But as your film shows in Afghanistan, that's one place 
where for a while, at least, it made a difference. Women were liberated after the oppression of the Taliban. They were educated. They could go to school. They could hold office. They could walk the streets. Half of the population, you know, was living a life that was denied them before. And one of the really depressing things your film shows is the resurgence of the Taliban in more recent years puts all that at risk. Which leads to the ultimate conundrum of, you know, what to do. Do you risk having all the progress that was made during those many years of nation building just wash away with a resurgence of the Taliban? Or do we stay in this seemingly endless war? What's the answer? It is the question. I actually thinking about it in terms of like the key inflection point for me was probably right after in, before the invasion of Iraq, actually, because I think at that time you had buy-in from all the regional powers, including Iran, a uh, neighbor who wanted to stable Afghanistan and were and were invested in that new in that new government. Once our attention focused turned to Iraq, it just kind of things started on a downward slope, which continued to that day to, to today. Now, it's you know, it's hard to it's hard to sit you know in the comfort of our homes and say that we should you know, continue to send soldiers to Afghanistan 20 years after the initial invasion, almost 40 years after our first involvement there. So, uh, on the other hand, when if, if we do pull out, there's a very good chance it's going to it's going to be, you know, chaos for the general population. The Taliban will make some kind of resurgence. There is a peace deal in place, whether they're going to abide by it, what that actually means politically long term, we don't know. I think there's a weariness from what I understand, amongst all parties, that after four decades of war, you know, people are people and they kind of just want to get on with, with their lives. So there's an element of hope there. But I think I think it's it's hard to know what staying looks like long term in a way that that actually contributes to some sort of long term viable, viable so, solution. Greg, not to put you on the spot, but having made this movie, um, what would you do if you were um, had the power to make a decision about what we do in Afghanistan? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I would in, in the best I, in the best of all worlds, you would keep some small presence there that can do a counterinsurgency, counterterrorism operation, and help support the Afghan government so it's not overrun by the Taliban. And rather than a full pullout, because we know what I a should, full chaotic pullout looks like in Syria. We know what happens there. I should point out that back to that first year of the Obama administration, that's what then Vice President Biden wanted to do, right? To withdraw, uh, bring down American military presence and just keep that which was necessary for counterterrorism. And that was rejected. That's right. And in fairness, I did when I did this front line in 2002. That's what the military commanders who led the operation in Afghanistan right after 9-11 envisioned as well. They envisioned, this is Green Beret commanders in conjunction with the agency, they envisioned a short-term commitment, you know, small footprint, because they knew the history of foreign occupying troops in Afghanistan, in, new government, and then out. And I think nobody, the initial war planners never, in fact, they considered putting you know, thousands of boots on the ground, but rejected it for practical reasons, but also because they thought politically it would it would be counterproductive. And we ended up doing that partly just through sheer bureaucratic inertia. 
So I think there were a couple of key moments. What you talk about, Vice President Biden, and even some of the early commanders, like let's not overcomplicate this, and let's let's kind of find a way of, of, of withdrawing or keeping a small footprint there. But it hasn't turned out that way. Greg, one of the things that uh, we've learned uh, more recently and that your movie shows is that policymakers, military leaders, people involved in that conflict have known for a long time that uh, they were not doing well, that they were not likely to, to win. There was a lot of manipulation of statistics, a lot of outright lying that went on. And the Washington Post, of course, revealed that in, in their series. And you got Doug Lute, Lute who was uh, the Afghan czar for both the uh, Bush and Obama administration saying we didn't know what we were we didn't know what we were undertaking we didn't or we didn't know what we were doing there we didn't have the foggiest idea of what we were undertaking as you looked at this history what did you come away thinking about all of that deception now there is an element of hindsight being 2020 but did they lie because they couldn't accept the um, political consequences of admitting defeat. What was the reason um, for that kind of uh, lying and deception that went on for so long? I think it was fear of telling the American people the truth that all these policymakers knew. It wasn't just the generals, it was the senior policymakers. The amazing thing is that about that Washington Post series is they, they got these tapes and transcripts from internal, <laughs> kind of an internal history of what went wrong, where everyone behind the scenes was incredibly candid, you know, publicly, you know, I mean, we're not surprised. That's the way it often works uh, in D.C., but uh, but to see it laid out so so clearly, I think it's just fear, a lack of a good alternative. You know, it's, yeah. this has not never been an easy problem. And so never not a lot of good options. So just the kind of sense of just like to muddle through and just keep pushing the ball down the road. I, I you know, I, general I, mixed administration. Mike, we're talking about this actually before we started recording, which is uh, when that series came, uh, that post series came out, it felt to me like, you know, it got a, a, some attention, but it felt to me like there was also a kind of a collective yawn. We were in the middle of impeachment, you know, Trump with all of his distractions. Was that your reaction too? And, and is that part of the sort of weariness or that just the sort of cynic cynicism after all these years of war that people just sort of expect that their leaders lie to them routinely about this kind of thing? Probably. We're in such a divisive time now, such a cynical time. I also found that people I talked to in D.C. who follow all of this, they're like, well, there's nothing new in here. We know all of this already because they were <laughs> people who looked at the problem knew. It wasn't like, yeah. oh, we think the war's going well and what a shock. Like it just was never articulated publicly. Yeah, right. And right. You know, it's just this general level. I don't think it helps us our belief in effective government when it's you know yet another proof. And it's just it does go across administrations. It must be said. People are not yeah. really upfront about it. So I have to ask you, the movie starts out with the uh, CIA agent, uh, the uh, uh, young woman. What, what's her name? Uh, Lisa Maddox. Lisa Maddox. And uh, I got to say, I was at first a little puzzled as to why a movie about the war in Afghanistan is starting with a um, 
young mother with her two kids in the backseat of the car trying to figure out where is this going and what does this have to do with what the movie is about? And then somewhere in the middle there, it dawned on me, this is in conjunction with the end of Homeland, and she kind of represents your Carrie Matheson, the um, CIA officer who's trying to make sense of uh, what's going on in the world. Am I right about that? No, I'm not sure she's exactly Carrie Matheson. It's like, no, she's not crazy. <laughs> she has, he's not bipolar. <laughs> she seems very sane, actually. Uh, yeah. It's like, I, I have well, a couple things. I had made a film about the hunt for bin Laden for HBO called Manhunt. Um, and at the core of that were uh, a group of women inside the agency who had begun tracking him back in the early 90s with Alex Station. But a version of that became Zero Dark Thirty. So I knew that I knew some of that, that world. And, uh, I also find, I, you know, I, as it happens, I have another film coming out this weekend. For It's a narrative feature for Netflix about Sergio Vero de Mello uh, called Sergio. And I, I'm, more and more, I, I'm more and more drawn to the emotional sort of stories behind the news. So my background is frontline uh, PBS documentaries. This is probably closer to that than some of my other films recently. It's a factual history. But at the core of these things, I think the way to get people to actually pay attention is to, sell, to tell stories uh, about people and their emotions. And Lisa, for me, is, you know, believes in the mission, believes in what she's done, proud of her job. And at the same time, as you see in the film, you know, really affected by, by it and questioning whether or not her, the risk she was taking, being away from her family for a war that's gone on for so long. And she saw a lot of, I think, pretty nasty stuff there. Um, is what has been worth it. And you kind of see the emotional toll that it's taken on her and through her, I think by extension us. So I'm just drawn to those kind of emotional. Yeah. No, I thought, yeah, I thought that was moving. I mean, just seeing her with her children and raising that question, am I a responsible mom for taking these risks when what I'm seeing on the ground suggests a very different story than what the narrative out there has been. Um, and a kind of a f- fatalistic moment. So, yeah, I thought that was uh, super interesting. The other thing, moment in the movie that I thought was interesting, it's something that I had never really thought about, was Steve Call, who, of course, uh, now is the dean of the Columbia Journalism School, fantastic journalist and the author of Ghost Wars, that great history of the CIA and the U.S. involvement in, in, in Afghanistan and Pakistan. But when he raises that question about basically says, I think the Americans never really knew whether the Taliban was their enemy or not. Now, yes, of course, the Taliban was allied with our enemy, Osama bin Laden, but that was in the very beginning, and they had never expressed any intention to strike at the United States. That was kind of a epiphanous moment for me, because the idea that we were in a war for two decades against, you know, a group that we don't even quite understand to how or why or to what extent they're our enemy. It's pretty interesting. It's very interesting. And so we, you know, we didn't go to, uh, we, we didn't go to, we went to Afghanistan because of Al Qaeda, which was given safe haven by the Taliban. But I don't think the Taliban knew about 9-11 at all. Um, and I look what, you know, if you're, if you're a Taliban, if you're a senior Taliban official, your guest launched, does this thing that causes you know, America to come and overthrow you and invade your country, you're not going to be very happy about it. And so I, I think it's, you know, not to excuse the Taliban and what's happened since, but and, or, or at all to excuse the kind of regime they had before 9-11. So it's but 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 in strategically, 
they were not sort of saying we're going to we're going to attack the U.S. But they did they did let Bin Laden do what he do what he wanted in Afghanistan and, and run those training camps. So I want to ask you about one more character who I found uh, fascinating, and uh, I can't remember his name now. Michael maybe was a British guy, a, a, an aid worker who had gone into Afghanistan, an aid worker who had gone into Afghanistan in like 1989. Um, oh, Michael and- yeah, and who who dresses, you know, like the Taliban, who speaks the language, his body language, you know, mimics their body language. Clearly, he had a relationship and had built trust with with the Taliban. Tell us, uh, tell our listeners about him. Well, he's a very interesting guy. He's kind of hard to kind of really get a handle on. But his name is Michael Semple. He's an academic out of uh, out of Dublin, but he he is also sort of interlocutor with um, all parties in Afghanistan. Seems to have contacts with. Uh, certain elements of the Taliban. I first came across him some years ago. Um, I was developing, developing a project, film that didn't happen, but about uh, David Rode and his, uh, mm-hmm. his kidnapping. And uh, his wife, Kristen Mulvihill, talked to Michael a lot. And I remember her, her telling me all these sort of conversations she had with this, you know, very well-informed, rather sort of unusual guy who was explained to her what the Taliban thinking was. And uh, she found, and she became quite close to him over the, just over Skype calls. And I was always intrigued. Bergen, Peter Bergen knew him as well. And I'd never really, and at times he's, he seems to talk to everybody and be trusted by everybody. And, and in that part of the world, it's, it, that's an unusual sort of quality. And uh, I'd never really seen him talk like he talks in this film. And so Peter and I thought, let's try Let's just ask and see if he'll actually do it. And, um, uh, and he did. So obviously, you know, it's not safe or particularly productive to try to get an interview with the Taliban. But I think Michael, as far as I know, he's not a supporter of the Taliban at all, but he does understand thinking. And I think it's useful to kind of understand that. Perspective. So, yeah, I mean, he was and he in the end did some filming kind of he had those meetings and, you know, we couldn't go. But he just did some filming himself on his iPhone, and uh, to give a picture of, of what he what he does. Very interesting guy. So I guess the uh, to close this out, uh, where we go from here, whether uh, two years, five years, uh, ten years down the road, the longest war will still be um, the right way to describe Afghanistan. What's your sense about the peace deal, whether it's going to lead to anything resembling peace and uh, whether the longest war will still be relevant in two, five or 10 years? I think probably if you're an Afghan right now, you're worried more about, I'd be worried more about the impact of this virus on on their society, you know, and and the chaos likely to result from that, you know, minimal health care, minimal social distancing, in the midst of a war, still ongoing war and turmoil, and a, and a you know there have been elections there, but there's now like non-Taliban forces can't agree who's going to be president. So there's two presidents, two vice presidents, and they're trying to negotiate this peace deal. I just feel for the for the the people who are just trying to get on with their with their lives. I don't think it's we're going to see peace in Afghanistan, particularly in the aftermath of this pandemic, anytime soon. Sadly. Well, a um, sobering thought to. Uh to end on but the movie is great it's got 
amazing historical perspective going back quite a few years, and it airs on Sunday on Showtime, I believe at 10 o'clock, right after the final episode of uh, Homeland. Do I have that correct, Greg? Yes, almost. It's the penultimate episode. Oh, it's the penultimate. Okay. <laughs> All right. But it's a great time slot, and, and then, of course, it'll be available on Showtime you know, any time after that. And God knows people have plenty of time to watch on demand for uh, the foreseeable future. Greg Barker, thanks for joining us and congrats on the movie. Thanks very much. Enjoyed it. It's no secret that our world has been interrupted. A World Interrupted is a daily podcast telling stories of coronavirus and its impact on the economy. We want to cover the issues in the macro, global economics, the stock market, and our political climate. We'll also cover the micro stories, maybe the ones you don't hear as much about in the news or the media. We hope you'll listen and be a part of the journey. So subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks to Greg Barker, director of The Longest War, for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.